don't get American high school cultures and those do y'all frighten me. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny show at the movies. He's wearing a mask of my face and forcing me to record offensive hate speech at knife point. It's oh <laughs> still God. so silly. It's so silly. It's so silly. <laughs> it's so silly. Uh, I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And on today's show, we will discuss There's Someone Inside Your House, uh, a new horror film directed by Patrick Bryce, written by Henry Gayden, and starring Sidney Park, Theodore Pellerin, Asha Cooper, and many more. It is adapted uh, from a novel by the same name written by Stephanie Perkins. And it's an adult novel and it shows. Well, it is a very interesting... Uh, I will tell you, this this movie shares very little with the actual book, based on my, my look at the book of what the book is about. <laughs> then I need to read the book, because I'm very curious all of a sudden. Well, I could tell you this before we get into it. The killer in this movie is not the main killer in the book. And then I need to read the book. I need to read the book very badly. <laughs> it is a whole other thing. And there's a lot more going on in the book that this movie, I guess, just decided it didn't need. And I, I, think, I think that was wrong. And we will get to that point, but before we get started, a friendly reminder to everyone listening that we would like to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We are still hoping to put together a listener mailbag episode at some point, so please let us know your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more. So I I guess I'll give like the, the basic rundown of what this movie is about. So it is a slasher horror uh, film. It opens immediately with a member of the football team being murdered after he takes a nap, and the presumed killer has placed pictures around his house of a crime that he committed in which he he and a number of other football players uh, in a hazing ritual viciously beat the gay player on the team who is, I believe, a wide receiver uh, who happens to be gay, etc. Uh, he's murdered. And as the story progresses, we start to learn that basically all of the kids in this high school, at least the ones that are quote unquote important, and I'm putting quotes around them because their importance is relevant to the story, all have some sort of dark secret. And the killer, at least the beginning of this movie, is targeting them for their various dark secrets. Those dark secrets are various levels from a crime such as a vicious uh, homophobic beating to uh, someone engaged in quite vicious hate speech against people of color. And then later to things like popping pills and other kinds of crimes. And then who, who becomes the killer at the end is like supposed to be a big reveal uh, in this mix is Makani young, who is a uh, African-American and uh, Korean person from Hawaii who has moved to Nebraska, this small town of, of Nebraska's version of New York, basically. It's it's small-ish, small town Nebraska. Uh, she has moved there with her grandmother and has her own dark secret, and so we're led to believe that this is going to become important to her, who, who how she is attacked in the story, and it follows her and a sort of ragtag bunch of her friends who are all sort of the sort of like traditional high school reject group who has for for varying reasons been placed in their own little table basically. And that's kind of the movie from there. There's like a bunch of other stuff. There's like a romance subplot, which kind of sort of happens and characters have identities, but largely aren't explored in any meaningful way. In fact, one character's entire identity is revealed to us through another character telling us about their college admission essay and using their identity as the basis of that college admission essay, which I get, but also found really obnoxious because at no point does the film actually decide, like, maybe we should let this character talk about themselves in some specific way. We're just going to have their entire identity be represented by the vicious racist telling us about her identity. Yeah, so that's the basic idea of the plot. I think that gets to it. Yeah, pretty much. So... (laughs) Okay, so I will start 
by saying this. I'm trying to find the nicest things that I could possibly say about this movie. I'm not trying to be mean. I don't, because I don't think the movie is terrible by any means. It just really disappointed me because I do genuinely believe as a writer and as a reader that horror and especially slasher films are supposed to unlock a kind of understanding about the ways in which we respond to fear. And a slasher film in particular uses those elements to ask like more intimate questions about the things that we know and why we think we know them. And this wants to care about that. That's the the initial setup of there is a serial killer in your small sleepy town who knows that you have done something uh, terrible and wants to make sure that everybody knows exactly what the terrible thing you did is and that you are punished for it is like very reminiscent of classic slashes. It's very scream. It's very, I know what you did last summer. And I want to say that's rad. And I think that that's putting this in a modern school setting and having person of color at the core of that story, like trying to understand how she feels about those realizations is supposed to be potentially interesting. And it asks a whole lot of potentially interesting questions as a result in the beginning. That's what I care about. Which means that somewhere around the 45 minute mark of this movie, I stopped getting the thing that I care about. I would say that that actually ends even before the 45 minute mark because they, so a lot of what you're talking about in this film. So we're, we're talking about a lot of the very explicit political issues that are at the beginning because the first two kills are involving people who have done either in secret or at least directly to the person or a person harm against a minority group. And obviously the people we're talking about are a white football player who engaged in a homophobic hazing ritual in which they viciously beat a gay man. And then the other character who is this church going, uh, you know, head of the the class sort of like the uh, basically like the, the class president person who is constantly putting out there about how inclusive she is and how much she respects other people's identities and wants people to be united and all of that. But then turns out to have made a secret podcast in which she espouses some very explicit, you you know, anti-black, anti-people of color, eugenics ideas. Those two are the first two kills. And that sets up very clearly for us that this is going to be a movie in which the killer is targeting people because of their secret, oppressive, horrible views of other people, either by physical actions they've taken or things that they believe that other people don't know about them because everything about this movie is about secrets. But once that those two are killed, the movie discards all of that and it stops wanting to actually explore the questions that that raises because ultimately one of the questions this movie wants us to think about is, you know, how should the audience feel about the fact that people are being viciously and brutally murdered as a consequence of actions they've taken that have hurt other people, especially minorities. But then more specifically, because of who is the primary focus, how do people who come from minority positions, how do they feel about it? Because I suspect that nobody actually wants someone to be brutally murdered. But at the same time, can you sympathize with someone who has been exposed as viciously attacking gay people or believing that black people are inferior and therefore should be, you know, basically re-enslaved. Like the, the film sets this up, like that's going to be what it explores. And then it just discards it because the next kill is of someone who popped pills. And we're supposed to think that those are on the same levels, but they're such drastically different secrets that I don't buy even in the film, the reaction to what we get because the reaction is all everyone's all disgusted with him the same way they're disgusted with the other two but all he did was he popped pills for himself he took them as he tells us i took them to like even myself out because it was so stressed out that that's just not the same it's sort of like all the political stuff gets discarded so like the thing that i think mattered to me at the very very beginning as you say is when you pose questions about people's secrets and like people's hidden selves like that. The obvious thing that comes up in that space is, well, does this person deserve to die? 
the uh, uh, opening credits sequence with all of the uh, voiceover overlays of other children saying, well, what he did was genuinely bad. What this footballer did was genuinely not cool. But did he, did he deserve to die for it, though? And s- several children like weighing in like, I don't think I care. Because that was still a shitty thing to do. Or I don't con- I don't condone that kind of behavior, but killing is still like a very big leap. That distinction is very interesting. It's also very interesting uh, the fact that the gay footballer who was assaulted later tells Makani and her friends, it was just a hazing thing. I didn't actually hold it against anybody. I mean, I'm still here. I'm still on the football team. But it never comes up as a result are you actually being respected by any of these people? Because like those kinds of assumptions that people make individually about, am I being accepted in this space? Am I going to give these people the benefit of the doubt? Happen in these spaces all the time, and especially in high school. And wrestling with that would be really interesting, especially because this core group of young characters that we're dealing with are mostly all marginalized there are two people there are two people of color in this group there is one gender non-conforming member of the group all of them genuinely feel like outcasts for reasons that have nothing to do with their identity but just the politics of high school even zach who is outcast because of things that he can't control because everybody hates his dad who is basically monsanto so mm-hmm. it's yeah. like quite quite literally so uh I had so many feelings about that guy <laughs> yeah but you can under but like i think what you're getting is like this group is a bunch of people who have been in some way outcast from what are the normal high school politics of popularity for reasons that aren't their fault they didn't like decide i want to be this that's like we became this group because this is where we found a home in this particular community of the high school yeah, and that is narratively golden in a, a slasher film premise because it means that not only are they aware of the fact that they can be potentially victimized, but they're also put in this unique position of observing everybody else's victimizations and being able to have like really astute observations about what that says for the culture of their school, for the culture of their space, for cultures of marginalization in general. And it comes up on a regular basis in very astute ways. Giving them the opportunity to be able to make those kinds of observations are some of the best writing moments in the entire movie. Because they're capable of pointing out, hey, this kind of sucks. And we're put in this unique position of having to doubt our relationship with all of our classmates in order to survive when we have hostile relationships with all of our, with the rest of the student body before very obvious, complicated, personal, political reasons. And that gives us opportunities to ask those interesting questions about identity, to like do the obvious uh, slasher thing of who do you think the killer is and why, and ask those questions in like, uniquely interesting ways uh and that happens for a good bit and that's like those are some of the moments that i actually genuinely value and then at some point it just like stops mattering alex as a character played by asha cooper really stood out to me because like she seemed to me on a regular basis to be consistently the smartest person in the group and like I kind of hated and also loved that I was characterized as being a bitch. But it's it's because she has reasons to be hypercritical of the space that she's in. And all of her critiques are genuinely valid for the most part. The only time I would say that that she run... I didn't really think of her as the quote-unquote bitch character overall. But I, I think where that might come through for some people is specifically in her condemnation of Ollie. Because there's a moment in the movie, which happens in lots of slashers and thrillers in in these kind of settings, in which the the one kid that everybody has rumored to be the bad kid, they all assume it's him. And Ollie is the one that gets pigeonholed, and she becomes part of the vocal group that says Ollie. But I also think you're right that her reasons aren't... the So the only reason Makani wants her to stop is because Makani actually has has known Ollie because they had a romantic relationship which is a secret that she she's held from everybody else but it is true that ollie's uh, ollie is a suspect because one of the kills involves a taser which is the one that kills rodrigo and it's worth noting that asha and rodrigo 
basically start a mini relationship that has been also another there's lots of secrets everybody's got secrets from everybody including ones that you probably should just stop having to be secret so that you can spend more time kissing the person that you really love because life is short and honestly and getting shorter apparently apparently getting shorter right so he gets killed there's a taser used and ollie happens to be involved with the police department because his brother or cousin or something is in the police department and there's all that stuff. And so they think, Oh, Ollie has access to all of the tools, right? Ollie has all access to everything he would need in order to know, like he would be able to pull people's phone records. He'd be able to do all of this stuff. So it must be Ollie. The problem is that from the audience's perspective, we know she's wrong, or at least we, we don't have as much suspicion as she does, because we know that Makani has had some relationship with Ollie that suggests that Ollie is not what everybody says that he is, right? That he is actually kind of a nice kid. He's he's pretty kind. And yeah, he's got hot eyes for, for Makani, which, you know, fair, fair point, Sydney Park is beautiful. But I think that that moment comes across as really... I don't I don't like the word bitchy, but just like comes across as very aggressive. And I could see where that that comes from. But it I don't know, like maybe maybe other people have a different interpretation. Yeah, I, I do get you like the joke among the group is that she's the bitch of the group. And that's just because she's the kind of person who says what's on her mind on a regular basis. And that's what I dig. I dig characters who do that. Yeah, and even even when she mistrusts Ollie. The ev- the assumptions that we can make about the evidence notwithstanding, her initial assumption her initial character assumption isn't invalid because that's a, a very cruel thing to say about somebody who's genuinely struggling with mental illness, as we learn about as we learn about Ollie later on. But that when all you have is the perception of your peers, when no evidence has arisen yet, you're going to make those assumptions anyway. And she's speaking from a place of pain because she just lost her partner. But the reason why that sucks for me is, you really mean to tell me you wouldn't stuck with Rod- you wouldn't have stuck with Rodrigo just learning that he at some point was addicted to pills? Like, y'all could have worked that out. You have been understanding of your friends consistently. You smoke weed. I don't get it. That's what I don't get either. When the reveal happens for Rodrigo that he he is a he's popping pills for a, a, a fentanyl specifically, which gets to another issue. We'll get we'll get to another issue I have with this entire fucking movie. But I don't understand. Like this group has been presented to us from the very beginning of, of being an incredibly accepting group of everybody's flaws, at least the ones that are known. And the ones that don't hurt anyone. The ones that aren't right. specifically about alienating other kids. Right. So, like, they accept Zach because Zach hates his dad because his dad's an asshole. But it's not Zach's fault, right? They accept Zach because Zach is, he brings them pot, which, fair point, you know, helps him out. You know, they accept him because he he is part of the group. He has become part of their like little micro family, right? They accept Caleb immediately after it's revealed that Caleb was beaten brutally by the first person who's murdered and his football team immediately doesn't want to accept him. And they literally say the very first moment they see him in the, in the cafeteria is you can come sit with us. And immediately after these accepted into the group, right? Despite the fact that he's clearly kept the secret that he was brutally beaten and all of this. And he has complicated feelings about what happened to him. He has complicated feelings about his football teammates who many of whom are homophobic, but he thinks that they're not all trying to be bad, but somehow I'm supposed to think that, because Rodrigo is popping pills that this group is going to just reject him. That's not the group we're shown. So what is the point of the scene? Because to me, the point of that scene is they all go to find Rodrigo once it's revealed. And they're like, let's get the fuck out of here. And like, let's go have a talk. And like, literally like a group hug moment, basically. That's to me what this group is set up to be. So I don't understand I don't, the whole scene doesn't make sense because I just don't think that that's a normal reaction where learning that someone in your school pops pills, all of a sudden everyone is going to look at you the same way that you would look at someone who engaged in a brutal homophobic beating or literally made a podcast where they argue about eugenics being okay. Like to me, they're just there's there's such a drastic disconnect of reality there. A lot about that entire scene that I'm thinking about it actually really pisses me off. It's not just that 
you were literally making out with your pot moments ago. Well, they weren't just making out. They weren't just making out. Oh, Lord. <laughs> they, they they got it on. <laughs> just want to be clear. <laughs> I, am not, I am not here to assume what happened off screen with two teenagers. I'm, gonna have, I, I'm an adult now. It, it seems so weird for me to have those kinds of observations. But yes. Fair point. Minutes later, she and all of her friends are running in the opposite direction and not asking where you are as you are about to be murdered. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's not just that. It's that the last two, like the two murders that precede this one are followed up with revelations that they committed genuine cruelties to other people and that the and that there is like genuine evidence of the thing there are photos of Caleb being assaulted those photos seem to be taken from the perspective of whoever is hitting Caleb at that point in time and I'm like why did you bring a camera with you my guy but still well they videotaped it right so they so they're like still shots from the video because there's a moment in it where they actually put the video out too yeah, and like that still strikes me as that very intense thing to do. But I guess, unfortunately, it is a thing that has happened. I don't get American high school cultures, and those do y'all frighten me. But yeah. there is evidence of of the people responsible doing the thing. There is, but the evidence that Rodrigo was doing drugs is a gif that the guy made. Yeah. That's a lot, my... F- oh my god. Like, really? We, that's all I need? An image macro to, n- to not trust someone yeah. just because they're... Just because they may or may not have just done drugs? They Like, it's not even the idea that they hurt someone while they were on drugs. It's that they're addicted to fentanyl. No... Nothing about getting help, nothing about, like, how do people, like, just uniquely feel about this individual fact. It's just, yeah, we addicted to drugs so i guess we're just gonna kill the guy now so why and uh, why did people just like accept that it doesn't make any sense it's just it this is like getting back to something we'd said like t- 10 15 minutes ago which is that all of the political message that this is trying to show about people who have done harm to other people getting a form of justice that may or may not be extreme which i think we will both agree that in generally maybe is getting stabbed to death is pretty extreme but like the things that the other people did are things that on the one in one case are actual criminal activities that could land you in jail being being someone up because they're gay is is straight up it's a crime it's a and it potentially a hate crime if it can be proved in court that's prison time Right. I mean, obviously, he's a he's a teenager and he's a white teenager, so he's going to get away with it. The second person that's going to destroy her college career because no Ivy League, she's like applying to Cornell or whatever. Right. She's applying to Ivy League schools An Ivy League school that finds out that one of its top prospects has put out a podcast in which they espouse neo-Nazi ideals is going to retract that acceptance immediately. They are not getting in. And so there are consequences for that. What is the consequence for Rodrigo taking fentanyl? He hasn't hurt anybody, right? That we we know of. There's nothing in the movie that suggests that he's hurt other people, right? He presumably has got it legally, or at least he has stolen it from a family member who did get it legally, because all of the bottles we've seen have a prescription on it. So he may have committed prescription fraud, possibly, I guess, but that's not shown. So the only harm is the is harm being done to himself. And so the consequences of that are not prison time or not having your college admissions canceled. It's getting sent to rehab, perhaps. Or dying. Just die. What, what, let's just... It doesn't it's so off scale. The scale is wrong. It it it's it muddles the message. It makes the act of having a secret just exist for having a secret sake. And the reason why that sucks is Makani's individual story is actually really intriguing through the lens of asking genuine questions about having hurt someone. Yeah, because the revelation, the revelation further down in the into the movie is that Makani moved in the first place because, among like other like family fracturing uh, things, she was part of a, a hazing ceremony that went so poorly that. 
while like drunk and like severely impaired in the middle of the night on this beach, she accidentally throws another girl into a bonfire and she suffers severe burns as a result of it. Uh, and goes to court and pleads guilty for severely injuring this other girl. But the assumption that we've made as a result is we know that Makani feels a lot of guilt about that. And we know that there were some consequences. And as a result, those consequences led to her moving to Nebraska to start over in the first place. Does she still deserve to suffer? And will other people agree? The meat of that question is genuinely interesting. And it's interesting because we know that Makani is constantly struggling with that. And like the other exacerbating thing in Makani's life is we know that her grandmother sleepwalks. So we know that on a regular basis, every once in a while, in the middle of the night, her house's front door will be open. And she feels a lot of anxiety about that, specifically in the wake of the first murder. The the combination of that narratively of somebody could be in my house and I wouldn't even know, or I would know and would not be able to do anything about it until it's too late. And I genuinely do have a secret that I don't want anybody to know about because I have done a lot of work to become a different person. And I don't want to suffer as a result of somebody bringing up the person that I was before, the, this mistake that I made before. Because I already have a lot of guilt about it. Yeah. Those things are very narratively meaty. Yeah. So for that to be in the, sp- the same space as somebody is already addicted to fentanyl, so I killed him. It's kind of like it robs a lot of the st- it robs a lot of the energy out of that and makes it very difficult for me to care about anybody who dies as a result. Yeah. People just like get seriously injured after Rodrigo dies, and I kind of stop caring. Like, this is a thing. All slasher films are about serial killers, basically, you know, with with rare exception, all slasher films are about serial killers. And you can't have a serial killer who kills people because they have secrets that they don't want other people to know because they don't want other people to think about them in a way that they have not. Like the idea behind this entire thing is that the killer wears a mask that is a 3D print of the person he's he's killing or well, we don't know it's a he and we figure it's a he, but the person that he's killing, he wears a, a, a 3D print of their face and then he kills them. And the idea behind that is fairly clear. And it is a thing that comes up at a couple points, which is that everybody's wearing a mask. And it is true that every single person who is killed is wearing a mask because they are hiding some aspect of themselves from everyone else because they want everybody to see the version of themselves they decided to show, which is, I think, a fantastic and interesting idea. The problem is that the very first two kills establish for us very clearly a pattern that the rest of the film discards in different ways. And if you're going to have a killer who kills people because he wants to expose their real faces... You can do that and have him kill lots of different people with different kinds of secrets, but then you got to think about the pattern that's being presented to us because there is, there's no way that a, a, a viewer of this movie watches the first two kills and thinks, gosh, the next kill is going to be someone who's popping pills. That there's the, the trend has been set for us that we are expecting a politically based killer because that is the story that we're getting. And this film doesn't. And that gets to what is probably the thing that actually bothers the crap out of me the most about this movie, which is there's all these little kernels of great ideas, but I have, I think this is the first film that I've ever been annoyed by because it was so political without substance. And I'm being super careful about how I say this because I don't want to like do the thing like I hate message fiction, which I think is a terrible, terribly lazy way of thinking about it. Because I like a horror film that has a political story. I think those can be very interesting. But this film seems hell-bent on using its 90-minute runtime to throw in every possible political issue that affects young people today that it doesn't want to explore at any any point. And and I and I really want to point out like every freaking issue is present here. We've we've got almost all all of the major identity concerns are present in this high school, which can be very interesting, except that the only time when one person's identity is actually discussed is not in a way that it is is more organic to how that person would describe themselves. Right. This is the non I don't even to be clear, I don't even know if they're non-binary. 
I don't know what their actual identity is because the only time we have a sense of what their identity is is when the evil eugenics lady is talking about what what they are. And when that evil eugenics lady explains who they are, they just say they say she, he, they, which doesn't help us to know what this person's like. Is it that they have rejected all all forms of or are they accepting all of them at once? I don't know. Like, the reason why that sucks is because Darby doesn't have that conversation with us, we were assuming that we have to take someone that we already know is a terrible person at her word. And, and so I don't. So I don't know. I don't know who Darby is. Identity. Yeah, and that sucks. Yeah, Darby, this is the thing, is like a lot of the identities that are presented in this story, and I want to be clear, I don't have a problem with these identities, but the way they are presented to us in almost all of the cases, they just are present because the story wants them to have these, not because it is thought about how they're integrated into this narrative. Yeah. We don't know really who Darby is. Caleb's identity as being a, a gay football player, his his identity is entirely thrown to us because he is beaten by other football players. That's how we learn about his identity. Makani's identity is somewhat suggested to us as well by the way that other people look at her. There's no sense that these are fully realized characters. And then when you throw that in with all the other political stuff of like, we've got the the hazing ritual stuff, and then you've got the neo-Nazi ideals, then you've got like the father who has a secret collection of Nazi memorabilia, you've got the fentanyl problem, which is a very serious health concern of people addicted to fentanyl. Uh, there's literally a, a talk about like abortion and miscarriage at one point. There's uh, all of these things. They just throw them out. It's just like every issue, like just throw them out. But at no point does the movie stop and say, let's look at who these people are and let's look at their characters. Even the moment when Makani and Ollie get back together, it's almost, there's an almost no dialogue involved. It's just like they see each other and they like do googly eyes and then they're boning in a car. I think that's fine if you've pre-established like there's a dialogue, there's a conversation that is making this make sense. But so much of this feels like we have lots of ideas and we have a picture that has numbers and we're just looking for the colors to fill in for the number. I've literally just blamed this for being like paint, paint by numbers, but that's kind of what this feels like of like, we want to shove as much in here as possible, but we don't want to explore any of it in any depth. And it's super frustrating because this is 90 minutes long. It's a very short runtime. There's only so much you can reasonably cover in a 90 minute film. But when I think about films that have explored some of these issues in a lot more depth in a short runtime, those films did it by not trying to have everything. And this wants to be everything. It it feels like um it feels like it was written for Gen Z's by someone who doesn't know who Gen Z is. <laughs> yeah. This is like when you say it aloud, because I again I'm trying very hard not to be mean. No, just be mean. <laughs> but this is like one of the first times in my life where I can look at a piece of media and go, yeah, this is what this is pandering. This is pandering. Yes! These things exist for no other reason than assuming that I'd care just because they happen. Yes! And that's not a story. That's just a series of images. I can find a series of images on the internet whenever I want. Yes! And part of the reason why it sucks as well is these kids are genuinely talented actors. Sydney Park in particular is actually mind-blowing in this movie. People already know that Sydney Park is talented, I'm sure. She's been working for a while. But, like, it always kind of sucks to see especially young performers give their all to a movie that does not actually care about the effort that they're making. Because when you, when, you put, when you put young people in a movie where the story is about the experience of being young, you're not just telling these young people to perform. You're telling them that the effort that is about to be expelled, like the work that you're doing at this moment, is to speak to people around your age about the experiences that they are presently having. And when you didn't, when you don't do the work necessary to give them the script that allows them to do that, you just uh, you're you're asking them to do all of the work for you, and that's not cool. Because Sydney Park is very good. The actor who plays Ollie, uh, Theodore Pellerin plays Ollie, and then Jess or Jess or Jesse Latourette plays Darby. Darby was good. And, like, I value that these performers are good and that they're doing the, uh, they're, they're doing the utmost. And it's, it's always also very special to, like, make 
a teen slasher movie because that's a special kind of that's a special kind of horror space because we get something different when we watch young people die in a movie yeah and that's like kind of the goal really and i i came to get that and while i don't think and the part that i think was depressing as a result now that i think about that as well is that i'm seeing these performers commit entirely to the idea that their life is in danger for some of the dullest deaths that I've ever seen in a horror movie in my life. We've always seen the tendon cut. We've always yeah. seen thrown on the knife. Like, it's just... Like, I don't think you necessarily have to have, like, super elaborate, amazing murders. But you can't have a, a not-so-great story, but then also very dull murders. Like, you can make a Saw movie with... The very elaborate murders, but have a really terrible story. But at least the murders would be memorable because they're clever. But this is just, it's just a lot of stabbing and being shot with tasers. Like, <laughs> it's just a boy with, a, like, an, a, an ungodly sharp knife. There are moments when I watch, like, individual cuts in that movie and go, is that a subtle knife? Are, are we in his dark materials all of a sudden? Because I don't know how you got that deep doing this wildly in the air yeah. with a dagger that short. I just think there are flashes of brilliance in this movie and it's coming individually from the from the young performers and the movie doesn't give a damn about them or the story that they're here to tell. I agree. And and I think I love that you used the word pandering earlier and and talking about like the ways that these actors are, are fantastic. I think I can't think of anyone in this movie that I didn't find believable as the character that they were presenting. You know, I really did think, I, I think it's Sarah Doug, Dugdale as, as Katie Coons who, who plays the, the like secret neo-Nazi, uh, you know, who believes in eugenics and crap. She mm-hmm. does a fantastic job of being this sort of cringeworthy do-gooder style president of the class kind of thing. She comes across that way very effectively I think the performance she gives is fantastic, however short that it's it is here. You know, Sydney Park, all of them are really fantastic. But one of what becomes very apparent is they just did not care about who any of these characters were, what kind of story we wanted to tell, and also whether or not the ending of this was going to be appropriately revealing and exciting. Because when we find out who the killer is. There really are only like two possible suspects that could be the killer. And when he's finally revealed, they want to make this into something that is not apparent in the rest of the story and is somewhat frustrating because they set up. So the killer's Zach, if, if you know, at this point, I think people should expect it was Zach all along. It was Zach all along. He was the killer. And he did it all because he wanted to get back at his dad and then he wanted to murder his dad in a burning cornfield because this part of the backdrop of the story is that his dad has been buying up people's farmland because they're broke. He's basically Monsanto where like they've all gone broke and he's buying it up for pennies on the dollar and he's like for whatever reason fighting against the police department by hiring private security which sure okay. And so he wants to murder his dad and then he's interrupted and he has a he has basically like a temper tantrum. And about like being interrupted and not being able to say like a really cool line before he murders his dad, which sure. And the end of that is, you know, he gives a speech about how he feels he feels kind of like unloved and unrespected because his dad's a garbage sack and all the people in the town hate hate him, Zach, for the the stuff that his dad's done that aren't what Zach did. Right. All this stuff is this baggage baggage has been put on him and he wanted to, I guess, reveal everybody's secrets to show off everyone's wearing a mask. And now he doesn't have to wear a mask anymore because he's who he really is. And it ends with Sydney basically doing a bit about like, you're not you're not oppressed. You're basically like privileged. And then like she kills him. And I found that super frustrating because this film does not establish that this is part of like the ethos of the story like at no point are we do we think that zach doesn't come from privilege we know that zach does come from privilege zach knows that he comes from privilege he's not poor he knows this right he still hates his dad because his dad's an asshole like and and it that's still just because he comes from privilege like doesn't mean that his feelings of being 
unappreciated and unloved and unfairly hated by other people in the town for things that he didn't do aren't valid. But also, I don't find the speech he gives at the end to be him saying, I'm oppressed. He's screaming out his feelings about how he feels like people hate his guts for something that's not his fault. Several things, like, on multiple layers, that entire moment just kind of falls flat to the point of being, like, absolutely meaningless in my brain. I literally had to watch the entire, like, from driving into the cornfield all the way to the end, I actually had to watch that part over because I I looked at it and went, is this something that I missed before we killed Zack? Because I don't get any of this emotional energy. And this is like, these are all of the reasons why it doesn't work. One, you are right in observing that like there, there is nothing about Zack's final speech that has anything to do with being oppressed. And like that, mentioning that in particular felt like it came out of nowhere and was like a waste of narrative energy in that beat. But also, everything that he said doesn't mean anything because we spent the other hour of the movie knowing that there are people who care about him despite his relationship with his father. Right. Because they're all the protagonists that we've been. Uh, spending time with for the entire movie. So I'm supposed to feel like you feel left out and ignored while you are looking at the person who has been your friend for several days and telling her you're going to kill her. Why should I care about what you feel in this moment? She also feels outcast. She didn't kill anybody. Yeah. You, n- you never asked McCartney how he felt, did you? Didn't matter to it's you. It's one of those things where maybe if they wanted the, like, they clearly want it to be a shocking reveal. I didn't really find it that shocking. I was kind of like, oh, it's Zach. Oh, surprise. It's the guy whose dad has a secret Nazi memorabilia collection that he is the son, by the way. I did find it amusing that he converted all his dad's Nazi stuff into bongs, which I thought was kind of funny, but mm-hmm. <laughs> is not a unique thing to this story that has been done in other movies. <laughs> like turning lugers into bongs which it you know yeah never yeah never has happened before but i mean if you did want to secretly undermine your your father's weird fetish for nazi memorabilia turning them all into bongs which you know your father hates because he hates that you smoke pot is certainly a way you could do it without disappearing at all i guess (laughs) can i also mention for the entirety of my career as a writer and a critic i've never really gotten the appeal of using Chekhov's gun as a critical premise, except for this movie. (laughs) For one very silly, meaningless reason. The establishment that he's converted all of his father's Nazi memorabilia into bongs is supposed to feel, like, interesting and funny on its own. It is, yeah. It's just supposed to feel like a one-off gag. He's got a gun. Nope. He's smoking weed. Okay, okay, cool. I guess that's amusing. But, like, then a hilarious thing happens near the end, which kind of spoiled the movie for me. We never established the original knife because it's just a, just a nice knife. Yeah. And then when Makani has the knife, we're like, well, what is the killer going to kill with now? And then He's got the, a Nazi killer now has, <laughs> the killer now has a long sword. Yeah, which presumably I'm he like, got from his father's collection. This is very ornate and it has a strap and the, the handle is very pretty. It's like, this is not just a knife. This is a knife. I'm supposed to care about this knife. Why should I care about this knife? What's what's so fancy about this knife that it couldn't just be an unsheathed blade, but not so special that you couldn't show it to me in full frame? Oh, it's because it's a Nazi sword. Yep. And, and because if you show me, then you give up the game. But then why is it here? Yeah. If this is a thing where the ending just wants to rush into its reveal and it wants the reveal to be significant on its own. If it's supposed to be a secret, then why is it a Nazi sword in the first place? If it's not supposed to be one, why didn't you set that up more properly? So I could feel like I'm being given clues that Zack is the killer. Because it doesn't want me to know. But then it commits all of its energy to ensuring that it must be obvious. (laughs) It's a lack of subtlety, right? Because once you get to the point at which we know the killer's now going to be revealed, there are two options. It's either Ollie or it's Zach. It has to be one or the other. 
Like, it just can't be anybody else. Because, well, at least if you want the ending to have meaning, right? Because if you just make it some other, you know, some random student we haven't met, then it doesn't have any meaning in the ending. It's just a random killer. And, like, who cares? So it has to be Ollie or Zach. But then it, it reminds us very clearly, it's not Ollie. Because Ollie couldn't possibly be in two places at once because he he just can't. It's impossible. So we now know it's somebody else. So it has to be Zach. But instead of being subtle and being like, well, maybe maybe we have like hints of images, like little things that if you're paying close attention, you might be able to figure them out. But the rest of the story is not revealing things to us. But once you see that sword, it's Zach. It can't, it cannot be, and it can only be somebody who knows about the Nazi room. Because where else in this story have we seen anything approaching weaponry beyond a knife? It's Zach's dad's house in the Nazi room. So once that sword comes out, it's like, well, it's Zach. It has to be him. It cannot be anybody else for this to have any meaning. But then it becomes far less compelling because it's not really a clue. It was a big glaring, it's him, look out in the middle of the movie. I, I, would, I would be less bothered by this if the ending wanted to be something more, but it doesn't because it both wants us to not think it's Zach and be surprised, but also be connected to Zach. So when it is him, we understand his motivations because there are scenes with Zach and his dad earlier. So it both wants to hint, but also not dedicate itself to it. And for this ending to really have real meaning, it actually has to drag out the final kill sequence in which he goes after Makani and her friends and really tries to like, it needs to do the classic slasher thing where she has to run and he chases her. And it's them being chased through this burning cornfield. And like, that's part of the story. And he, there's more time for him to reveal his deep inner hate, his secret, right? As he reveals his mask, all of that needs to be stretched out so that when we get all of the material, we, we know why he is the character that he is. We don't remember that we're supposed to be shocked that it's him. We start to think about what were his motivations for all of this. But the film is not interested because that final moment with Zach is like two and a half minutes and it's over. It's just it's devoid. It's devoid of any real meaning. The speech he gives is not I don't even remember everything he says in it. It's just there. It's a thing that happens and then it's over. Yeah. This film doesn't breathe. It doesn't. I mean, think about the number of people that are murdered and how much this film doesn't seem to care about the fact that a murder in a high school probably would have a pretty big impact. We only go to one memorial. Yeah. And then when we learn that another child has died in the church, we never care again. Too many deaths to care about all of a sudden. That's a lot. Even Heather's doesn't do that, at least at some point. Yeah. Even when our capacity to care dwindles, at least our capacity to care dwindling is the point of the movie. Yep. This film wants us to still care and... Wants us to still be in constant fear and we're not. Yeah. I don't get it. It's it's bad. I wanted to like this. I wanted to like this movie. But what ultimately I'm learning is we need to put Sydney Park in a better slasher. I mean, yeah, I would watch her in a better story. She yeah. is fantastic. I, I think a lot of this cast, I would like to see them in, in more stuff, whether it's horror or something else. But this film just ain't it. It's the age old Netflix problem, which is Netflix can do pretty decent television shows but just still struggles to do good movies it's also the unique problem of everybody thinks that when you adapt a horror book or horror story to film you need to do something new in order to gain the intrigue of the people who are watching but i hadn't read the book i would have been fine with however the book ended because i'm sure there was value in that because the book is well reviewed so I do have to give me a rope dope I don't. I I came here just to experience the thing. You don't. You don't have to make a new ending for me. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, and and I I have not read the book. I've heard good things about the book. So presumably the book is a lot better than this. But I mean, let's be honest. The number of times in which the book is better than the movie is like ninety nine point nine percent. So. <laughs> I mean, this is true. I think it's a good time to get to final thoughts and, and grading this thing, which <laughs> might be the first time we're being very mean to it. So, Brandon, your final thoughts and a grade, please. Oh, my God. Final thoughts. There are very, interestingly, for a slasher movie, the bones of something very intriguing and fascinating, not only in the general slasher sense, 
but in the general movie sense, that is here, and most of that energy is from the performers themselves. And then the script just had to ruin it by not caring. And I kind of want to see what it would look like if somebody did care. So I think I think I have to give it a 3 out of 5, and that's... Like, two of those three stars are just for Sydney Park. Okay, 3 out of 5, we'll put it at... That's about a C, then. Yeah. Dead Center. Yeah. Well, you're nicer than I am, because uh, I really legitimately hated this movie. I, I might have ranted with my brother a few times <laughs> while trying to make sense of this. Yeah, I mean, everything you said is right. I think that it's really sad to actually say the phrase that you said, which is basically like that for a slasher, there's a skeleton of something interesting here because slashers tend not to be terribly complicated stories, right? They're they're slashers that the premise of a slasher is pretty, pretty direct. And yet <laughs> this film is confused and it's a mess, but I it's not good. It's just a very bad, bad movie. And it is unfortunate that it wastes such great talent on such poor story writing. And for that reason, uh, I'd actually give it a D minus. Wasn't meant to be torture cinema. We thought we were getting something better. (laughs) Usually we don't have this. This doesn't happen very often in which we everybody universally basically doesn't like the movie. But yeah, usually like we find something redeeming or at least if I didn't like the movie or someone else didn't like the movie and talking about it, they kind of go, okay, I can kind of see. And then we might modify our opinion a little bit. But yeah, I just think in this case, everything redeeming about this movie was ultimately let down by the movie and deserved to be in a better movie. Yeah, unfortunate. All right, folks, we did it again. If you'd like to let us know what you thought, if you've watched this film, for example, we'd like to know your views of this film. Maybe maybe you think we're wrong. I don't know. Or you think we were too nice, which, okay. <laughs> Head on over to skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions and let us know. Uh, always, you can follow us at skiffyandfanty on Twitter and Instagram and get our newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And if you enjoy what we do, you can really use your support at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. You can also give us five-star reviews on iTunes, Podcatcher, or Podchaser, whatever it's called. All the pod places. And for me, you can find me uh, at Sean Duke or SeanDuke.net or on Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. And you can find me at The Rising Tides on Twitter and on Speculate, where I currently GM The Case of the Cinded Seal, a Blades in the Dark actual play. Woo! And on, on that note, I just, I, I want it to be said that uh, my ending line upon my eventual death at the tender age of 30,000 years old will be... The line from this movie, you're not oppressed, and then I'll just die. Oh, God. I don't know. I, 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 I'm really curious who has to kill you for that to be the, like the thing that you have to tell them. Oh, no, no. I'm not, I'm, no one's going to kill me. I'm just going to yell it oh, as I just... die to confuse ah, cool. everyone. Mm, fair. <laughs> I actually dig that a lot. <laughs> All right. And on that note, awkward ending and scene. Have a good one, everyone. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening.